0: So, hey, if you're joining with us for the first time tonight, welcome. We're so glad that you have come to worship and celebrate uh, Christmas with us, and we're just glad that you're here. And what I want to do tonight is I want to share with you uh, about some of the most classics, some of the most iconic characters in the Christmas story. Uh, Tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Magi, the the characters that were mentioned at the end of that video. And their story picks up in Matthew chapter 2, And we're going to jump right in, and I want you to see what it says, and look how it begins. So, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? So, let's talk for a bit about wise men. So, Uh, The wise men, of course, are some of our most popular characters in our manger scenes and in our bathrobe pageants. In fact, when I was in elementary school, I actually played a shepherd, and I think I did a pretty good job. My mom said I did a good job. And, um, but, you know, they have their own song, you know, We Three Kings of Orients Are and so on and so forth. But it's interesting because much of what we think we know about these characters reflects more magi lore than it actually does the biblical text. So interestingly, in the third century, it was suggested that there were three and that they were kings, and that they represented the three known continents of the the world at the time, Europe, Asia, and Africa, reflecting the hope that one day all of the nations would come and worship the Lord. And then in the Middle Ages, they were even given names, uh, Belshazzar, Melkar, Caspar, not to be confused with the friendly ghost, and the Empress Helena claimed that their skulls were found and you can visit them to this day. Apparently, they're in a Gothic cathedral somewhere in Europe. And so some of you might consider a pilgrimage um, at some point. But what's fascinating is almost none of this information is actually drawn from the biblical text. You know, the text tells us that there were three gifts, but it doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. There could have been four, as the girl said in the video. There could have been 13 uh, or 30 There's actually a tradition in Eastern Christianity that there were 12 that visited the manger. And there's nothing that says that they were kings. And despite their presence in our nativity sets, they likely don't show up until some one to two years after the birth of Jesus. And I remember learning about this when I was a zealous young Christian in high school. And at the time, I I insisted that my parents put our wise men in the backyard for (laughs) biblical accuracy, you know. So they weren't kings. There may have been more than three, and they didn't make it to the first Christmas. So that raises the question, who were they anyway? And the word translated in our Bible as magi is a transliteration of a Greek word, magoi, which kind of sounds like magician, and that kind of describes what they were. They were something of astrologers, magicians who worked in the royal courts. And uh, oftentimes in the ancient world, in the royal courts, uh, some of the, the most prestigious, elite, members of the court were their astrologers and they would study the stars to get intel about events on the earth and they would, they would earn high, high incomes for this kind of work. And so, uh, so what, what's fascinating though is that in the Jewish scriptures, in the Old Testament, this practice of astrology is forbidden. Uh, They they did not look kindly on divination and magic and this sort of thing. In fact, uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 put it like this. It says, the nations you you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. Thank you. But as for you, the Lord God has not permitted you to do so. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And so they're not kings, these are well-moneyed, well-connected, elite, pagan astrologers, likely serving in the court of foreign governments. And it's these guys that take a long and arduous, some six, 800 mile journey across hostile and barren landscapes of the Arabian desert to render their worship to the Jewish Messiah. And I just think that's fascinating. You know, by the Jewish people, they were viewed as the consummate outsiders. They were Gentiles, not Jewish. Uh, They were, according to the language of Deuteronomy, they were the detestable ones practicing astrology. And yet it is these ones that show up at the birth of Jesus to render their true worship. Now, why would they do this? Well, the text tells us it was because they said, we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So, what's up with the star? You know, some have suggested a natural phenomenon like a supernova. According to Chinese astronomers, there was one such supernova in four or five BC, which fits the timing. Others suggest that maybe it was a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter was associated in the ancient world with kings, Saturn with the Jewish people. So the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn might mean that a Jewish king was to be born. Some have said, of course, that maybe it was neither of those things. It was a supernatural event. But whether a supernova or a conjunction or a supernatural sign, we don't know. But what we know is this, that something beyond them, Something outside of them was calling them, and it was the tug that they had waited for their whole lives. And maybe they had their astrology and their magic and their books, but nothing seemed to work for them. And so when they saw the star, they embarked on this long and dangerous journey. The star called them out on a spiritual pilgrimage called them out away from everything that was familiar and all they knew and away from the royal court and all of the trappings and away from the reputation and the safety that they had built. And and it called and they went. Now, when this entourage arrives in Jerusalem, they create quite a stir, as you would imagine. I mean, this large entourage, wealthy, elite astrologers show up and they're talking about a king. and, and, And they show up, it says, in the days of Herod the king. Now, this is important. Uh, Who was Herod? So Herod was something of a mixed bag as a ruler. He was religiously Jewish, he was racially Arab, uh, he was politically Roman, and he was a visionary, a master builder, and he constructed palaces for himself and colosseums in Rome-like fashion and the temple in Jerusalem. And so he was a dynamic, a visionary, a powerful leader but he was also a savage, power-hungry, insecure, narcissistic tyrant, Uh, not uncommon among politicians, it seems. And when he took the throne, Caesar gave him the title the King of the Jews. And he would do whatever he could within his power to keep a hold on that title, the King of the Jews. And it's here in this context, in the days of Herod, the king, that that wise men show up asking about another king. And again, he does not take kindly to this. Just after he came to power, there was a conspiracy to overthrow him and it was unmasked. And he took the 10 conspirators, their wives and their children, and had them all publicly executed. And later in, in his life, he was so paranoid that someone was going to take his power that he killed his brother, his mother-in-law, his barber, his favorite of 10 wives and his three sons. And so this was a scary, scary, paranoid man. And it was in the days of this king that these guys show up asking about another king. And so no wonder when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was with him. You know, Herod's like, mama, if, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And no doubt he thought, look, I'm the pretender king. And what's going to come of me when the real king, God's king, shows up? A new king in Jerusalem is a threat to the old king and the old order. And all those who trusted in and benefited from that old order were deeply upset by the prospect of newness. And so he said, we got to do something quick. And so he does something strange, I think. He, he, he calls an impromptu consultation with all of the leading biblical scholars. And look what it says. He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He thought, they'll know. You know, the Bible, they study this stuff, you know? They'll know. So he calls them together. And the religious leaders, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, these are the most uh, well-educated, Bible-knowing people of the day. And so they don't disappoint. He says, where's the Christ going to be born? Where is the Jewish Messiah? They said, look, um, uh, they said, look, it's in Bethlehem of Judea. Everybody who studies this stuff knows that. For so it's written in the prophet, you know, Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel is gonna come. And he hears this talk about a ruler and and he's concerned. And so he summoned the wise men secretly and he, he, he holds court quietly with them and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him as well. Hey, you guys, you know, he's going to save some money on national security. So he just sends them down to find this uh, potential threat to his kingdom. And he says, hey, you know, let me know when you find him so I can send some flowers, you know. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I was trying to imagine this group of wealthy, elite astrologers who spent their days in the royal court, first going to Jerusalem and seeing Herod's palace and all the opulence and thinking, surely the king is going to be born here. And then they leave the opulent palace, the royal court of King Herod, and the big city of Jerusalem, and they head nine miles south, to their shock and surprise, to the rural, dusty, unimportant, unpretentious little town of Bethlehem, the hometown of King David, where this hope had entered the world quietly. And I just imagine them walking, you know, through the town, first passing the big houses in the affluent neighborhoods and then going through the middle-class neighborhoods all the way out to the Section 8 housing on the edge of the city over which the star shone bright. And I can just see them in my mind's eye, these wealthy elite with all of their entourage squeezing into the small quarters of this peasant mother and her working-class husband, and the whole lot of them Bending down so their turban doesn't hit the rafters, bending down and falling down and worshiping. And the, the text describes this unusual moment like this. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts: gold and frankincense and myrrh. They offer all of the right gifts, gold, symbolizing royalty, frankincense, divinity. Myrrh, a shadowy reference to Christ's future death. Now, the story doesn't end there because the paranoid king, Herod, has been threatened. And look what it says. So an angel came and warned them in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. At this point, the story takes a dark and ominous turn, King Herod feeling threatened like a, an, an animal who's wounded that's under threat, goes on the attack. He goes after Jesus. Jesus has to flee as a political refugee with his family into Egypt. And violence erupts. I was thinking about this image of Jesus, a political refugee, on the run from a violent ruler. And I, I, I was reading an, an article this week Uh, in in the New York Times, and it it was talking about the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And some of you might have seen this image uh, right now. You know, Bethlehem has some 25,000 Christians that live there. Every year, Bethlehem is flooded with pilgrims who go there to celebrate, to worship on Christmas. And they had taken the manger scene outside of the Church of the Nativity, and they had surrounded it with rubble and barbed wire to say that here is where the Christ child has come to make his home amidst all the rubble and barbed wire. And you see that that's the world in which Jesus entered into, a world that was surrounded by rubble and barbed wire by the likes of Herod, and, and, and the story ends. I want to stand back, and I want to just make a simple point about this story, I want to just kind of press home a simple, singular idea that I think this story is getting at, and I think it's simply this. This is not a story of three kings. You know, in our popular, this is, you know, we three, no, this is not a story of three kings. This is a story about two kings, King Jesus and King Herod, and the kingdoms that they represent. The first king and the first kingdom, it's a a kingdom that's marked by darkness. There's a violent kingdom of man too often presided over by anxious, fearful, threatened, narcissistic rulers like Herod, the self-protecting king who takes the life of the innocent. And then set in juxtaposition to the kingdoms of man is a different kind of kingdom. There is a generous, vulnerable, neighborly, and peaceable kingdom of God that has come to birth in the midst of our world in this Jesus. And this kingdom is presided over by the king who comes in vulnerability amidst the rubble and barbed wire, wearing street clothes, working with his hands, touching lepers, welcoming outcasts, The self-giving king, the innocent one who gives his life to save the guilty. Listen, Christmas is about a lot of things, isn't it? It is about Christmas trees and lights and decorations, and later you're going to go home and like us, you might eat some ham and some cheese potatoes and such and play that gift exchange and pray that the family doesn't erupt in fights over the gift exchange. Anybody else? All right. All right. Listen, Christmas is about a lot of things. But at its heart, before Christmas is about anything else, it is about the birth, the emergence of a new kingdom, a kingdom of justice and love, a peaceable kingdom of neighborliness that has come to birth in the world, a kingdom that ultimately will overtake all of the kingdoms of the earth and will be the eternal kingdom. This kingdom that has come to birth in the midst of the kingdoms of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, and at the heart of this kingdom is the king over every king, the Lord over every Lord, namely Jesus. And I think in this story, I think what we're intended to do, I think what the story at least invites me to do is that it invites me, it invites us all, I think, to enter into its narrative and maybe find ourselves in its characters. You know, some of you played different roles in uh, pageants growing up. See, how many of you have ever been in a Christmas pageant growing up, just a show of hands? So yeah, a lot of you have. Well, here's an opportunity if you haven't. You can choose one of three roles to play this Christmas. You see, there's three responses you can have to the king and the emergence of this new kingdom, I think that we see in this story, and the first role you can play, the first response you can have to the king and to the new kingdom of Jesus is this. First, you can play the Herod role. You can be, like Herod, threatened by the new king. Like Herod, you can, you can be threatened because, because if, if there's some other power that is over you that's bigger than you, you might need to let go of some stuff in your own life that you are holding to with for dear life. You might need to surrender. You know, Herod was not wrong. Jesus did prove a threat to his kingdom, not in the way Herod thought he would. Uh, he, he didn't, Jesus wasn't gonna raise up a violent military revolt. Jesus wouldn't, he wouldn't overthrow uh, somebody like Herod like that, but what he would threaten is Herod's own anxious, grasping need for power. You cannot have Jesus at the center of your life and be grasping and reaching for something else to build your life, your identity on. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is the King over every King and the Lord over every Lord. And so he will indeed prove a threat to to, to stuff that you have at the center of your life. There's no doubt about it, but listen, this is incredibly good news because Jesus is a far better leader and Lord in your life than anything else that you set at the center. And so you can be like Herod, you can be threatened by the new king. Second, you could play the role, you're like, I don't wanna be Herod. Anybody? I don't wanna be Herod, do you? Uh, you can, here's the second role. You can be like the chief priests and the scribes the good thing about these people is they are very religious, and they look good because they had the right outfits, they had special outfits they wore. And what's also good about this character is they knew the Bible, people respected them. Uh, if they were asked by the king to render some truth about what, some coming prophecy, they knew the answers. These were they, This is a good role to play. You can, be, you can be like the chief priest, you can be religious, and yet uninterested in the newness of the kingdom of God. I think it's so interesting. The consummate insiders in the story are the chief priests and scribes. They follow all of the rules. They go to church, they know their Bible, they teach Sunday school, uh, they they serve as leaders in the synagogues. They're there, they're like, everybody respects them. Like they are the consummate insiders. And yet I find it so ironic that here they are, they know the Bible, they quote the Bible, they go to church, but yet they will not travel a modest nine miles south to see if this king is indeed born, is the true king that they had been waiting for? What had all that Bible study been about anyway? And yet, on the other hand, the consummate outsiders the ones named in the Mosaic law as the detestable ones. These are the ones who, after practicing their divination and astrology, respond to the little bit of light and revelation that they have, and they will go on a a spiritual pilgrimage that's a model to us all. They will risk life and limb on this arduous six, 800-mile journey in order to find an answer to their deepest heart's ache and longing. And listen, I just want you to know, like if you're, if you're kind of, you, you're new to Christianity, maybe you've been invited here by a friend or family member or whatever, and you're like, look, I, I'm not, I don't, you know, I've been turned off by religious people, church people, there's so much hypocrisy in the church. Listen, that's not a new problem. It's been with us for a very long time. But listen, there is something real. There is a true light that is broken into the darkness. There is a star, there is truth, there is revelation. The true and living God has broken into this world. And maybe this, the hunger you might feel right now, that ache that you cannot satiate with, whatever it is you're trying to fill that hole with, consider the possibility that maybe, maybe every year when we come back to Christmas, maybe there is something here for you maybe the incarnate love of God has indeed broken in and is available to you. So you could play the, uh, the role of Herod. You could play the role of the chief priests and scribes who they won't, they're, they're religious, but they're just apathetic, you know? They don't really want the change that the radical countercultural kingdom of Jesus brings in the world. They want to feel right. They want to feel superior. They want to feel better. They want to know that they have certitude in the face of all of the things that are worrying us, but they don't want the newness of the kingdom of God among us. There's a third role you can play. You could be like the Magi. The Magi, you you, you can be like the Magi and worship the new king And reorient your life around this new kingdom. Now, for some, where that might begin for you is where you're at today. God met the astrologers where they were at. They had their head up in the stars. God said, I can use that. I can begin there and I can start to draw you out to a different place. And maybe you just need to take a couple steps in a direction. Maybe for some of you, it might mean like, look, maybe in this next year, I'm gonna commit myself to exploring this. Maybe I'm gonna start coming to church here a little bit. I'm gonna learn a little bit more, but it might mean a journey of exploration. They took this journey, but when they got to Bethlehem, something else had to happen. And I think this probably is something that is the journey of a lifetime for a lot of us. They had to abandon their previous notions of the kingdom and they had to embrace a radically different understanding of who God is, what God is like, and what God's about in this world. They went to the, 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 the court of Herod first because that made sense. That's where royalty, this is what power looks like, this is how we use power, you know, it's like Herod you know? Um, and, and yet they had to jettison that and enter into this small peasant home and see and learn a new kind of wisdom. The wisdom of God come to birth among us in Jesus. Listen, I, I know, like, it, it's true. You know, um, so so often, you know, Like, we get discouraged, some of us, because it's such a busy season, and there's pressure about gifts and buying and and financial pressures, and sometimes it can feel stressful. And sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever been to this place, but do you remember that scene in A Charlie Brown Christmas, where Charlie Brown, who has gotten so cheesed off by the commercialization of Christmas, you know, even his dog has gone commercial, you know, and you remember he calls out in exasperation, he says... What is Christmas all about anyway, you know? He wants to know. Listen, if you want to know what Christmas is about, what is the true meaning of Christmas? It is here. It is in this vulnerable, humble baby in a manger. God, the very eternal word, made flesh among us made weak, made vulnerable, made needy, taking on human flesh that will be so vulnerable, he will be betrayed, he will be beaten, he will ultimately be crucified for the healing of all creation, to bring reconciliation to all things. And every Christmas, we are invited to come back and relearn the wisdom of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you're invited this Christmas through this story, I think, to choose the role you want to play, the Herod role, threatened by power, you know, that's going to challenge you. You can play the role of the chief priest. You can hold on to your religion, your certitudes, or you can move into the role of the magi. And you can acknowledge the true and living king and orient your life around him.